from the Auto Line Studios. Here is your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us here on AutoLine this week, where we're going to be talking about public relations crises. When the world's blowing up for your car company, how do you manage that from a public relations standpoint? And my special guest today is somebody with a lot of experience in doing just that. Jason Vines is a former head of corporate communications for Nissan, Ford, Chrysler, and some other things. And Jason, welcome to the show. It is a pleasure to be here. And he's going to have a book that we're getting into all about it. Also joining me on today's panel are Peter DeLorenzo, website publisher, consultant, somebody with a tremendous amount of public relations background in his family history as well. And we've got Tom Walsh, too, the business editor for the Detroit Free Press, and great having the both of you here today. Good to be here, Jeff. Jason, let's talk about the book. You've got one of the most incredible titles, what did Jesus drive? Now, why would a book about public relations crises start out with a title like that? It's a circuitous route. However, back in 2002, 2003, the auto industry, specifically SUVs, were under attack by a group of evangelicals with a campaign, What Would Jesus Drive? And they were trying to shame Americans into getting rid of their SUVs and shame the automakers to stop making SUVs because they said they were immoral. Uh, the group was highly hypocritical, and they were supported by Arianna Huffington, who said, well, she lived in a mansion and used all the energy in the world and flew on a private jet that Americans shouldn't drive SUVs because they were supporting terrorists. And so this also supported the Earth Liberation Front, which was burning dealerships and putting firefighters in harm's way. So I led a charge against the What Would Jesus Drive people to show their hypocrisy. Uh, through my automotive career, I later ended up at Zondervan, the largest Bible company in the world, to help them avoid a crisis with the Bible, of all things. And so I thought the best title for the book would be, What Did Jesus Drive? And finally answer that question. Now, you've got to give a little bit more of the background, too, because in doing that campaign, you went out and found a guy, I believe his name was Jesus. I did find Garcia? Jesus. Garcia? I found Jesus. <laughs> Um, his so name, to speak. His name in the book, in the Waterford, Michigan telephone book, was Jesus Rivera. Rivera, okay. He went by Jesse, but still he was a Jesus, a Jesus, and I went out and met with him. He was a retiree from GM. He owned two SUVs in which he transported his grandchildren around. He was a Vietnam vet, and I asked him if I could use him in an ad for USA Today. I'd give him $500 to take the picture. He said, sure. I told him what we were up against, that you know dealerships were being burned and so forth. And uh, he agreed to it. We spent $25,000 producing and placing the ad, full-page ad in USA Today, which said, what does Jesus drive? We asked him. And it kind of exposed the hypocrisy in the... the Very successful. I mean, this uh, whole anti-SUV thing is pretty much gone by it, the wayside, pretty much. It operated almost overnight. We got about $50 million in free coverage around the world to our campaign. That night, I was on hardball against the Reverend Jim Edgar, uh, the late Jim Edgar, who was a former congressman who was leading the second in command of What Would Jesus Drive? He spent the first two minutes attacking my character because I was from the auto industry. Ah, oh, egad. Uh, not talking about the issue, and when it was my turn, I just said, you know, as a Christian myself, I find it kind of troubling that a man of the cloth resorts to character assassination instead of talking about the subject at hand. And he backpedaled and was dead, as was the issue. <laughs> so, Jason, uh, you, the book is interesting and fascinating since I have a background in that subject matter. And you've worked with some of the best um, yeah. CEOs in the business. 
And I'd like to know who they are. Who, how would you rate those? And who was the worst that you ever worked with? No, this, this is a softball. <laughs> um, in the ind- auto industry, uh, Jack Nasser is number one. As the best. As the best. Uh, a rena- as I write in the book, a renaissance man. More importantly, he saved people's lives during the For- Ford Firestone tire crisis at his own peril and mine. We both got fired. We knew we'd get fired. But we knew that in the summer of 2001, if we didn't recall the rest of the Firestone tires, which we did alone, Firestone didn't help, we knew that eight people would die based on the science. And we made that call, led by him. And uh, as I said, we both got fired for it later, but uh, I think he's he's a genius and a a good man. Um, Number two, um, because I work closely with him, Dieter Zetcha. I think he's a great man. He's a great friend. Currently CEO Currently of uh, Daimler. Of Daimler. Uh, he helped save Chrysler. Uh, without the purchase of Chrysler by Daimler, I think Chrysler would have gone down and would have gone down alone. There wouldn't be GM also bankrupt and going to get the government. And it, because it would have been Chrysler's second time in bankruptcy, government would have said goodbye. So uh, third, uh, and only because... Uh, I didn't work so closely with him. I was a middle manager or younger. It was Lee Iacocca, who saved Chrysler and saved the dealer body and became a great friend. Um, I'm the one that got him back on back to Chrysler on the ads. On ads with Snoop Doggy Dog. Snoop well, maybe Doggy we'll get Dogg. into that later, but keep going with the best and the worst. Uh, Gohn, a close fourth. Carlos Gohn at Absolutely. Nissan Renault. Carlos Gohn uh, saved Nissan. Uh, and did so with death threats and so forth. In his early days, he was a villain who later became a comic book hero, of all things, because of what he did. He, he, he made sure he understood the Japanese culture. That's the, the student he was, so that he wouldn't offend. But he made sweeping changes to Japan, Inc. Um, so those are the good guys, and unfortunately, they're all guys. Um, who's left? Oh, my last CEO at Chrysler, whose name will go unmentioned, except in my book. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the book mentions it a whole lot, and that's Bob Nardelli at Chrysler. Yeah, he did not do well there. Um, he was out of his element. Out of his Completely. element, and he was on a mission to regain his aura. He had been passed over by Jack Welch, GE. Smart guy, by the way, Okay. Uh, had gone to Home Depot and didn't do well there. Left with a 220-some million dollar golden parachute. After many people say he almost destroyed the, the character of the company. I don't know if he did that because I wasn't there. Came to Chrysler on a mission to rehabilitate his image and just didn't seem to want to listen. And uh, was gone after uh, the bankruptcy. Some people, Jason, I think will read this book. Uh, some people from your profession or your former profession, will read this book and say, Jason Vines will never work in this town again because you told stories uh, up close and personal from all those crises. Not, not a lot of titillating ancillary stuff that's not related to the crises. It's all pretty on point, but it's also pretty raw, pretty straightforward. And some people would say, ooh, I'm never going to hire a guy if he's going to tell everything that happened five years down the road. What, 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 what do you think? That's why I play Mega Millions and Powerball on Tuesday and Wednesday. <laughs> um, uh, I hope people read it that it's a very factual account of what happened. I don't get into personalities, really, and I didn't want to. I get into some, 
but I don't get into the sordid details or s things like that. I, I hopefully share lessons learned, mistakes made, some on my part, but uh, what to do when you're in a crisis, what works, what doesn't. Uh, the bottom line of the whole book is be honest. If you screw up, admit it and move on. We have a very forgiving public in, in this country. And if you admit you made a mistake, people say, okay, they admitted it. Unless it's heinous. Uh, a Bernie Madoff doesn't get a, okay, you're all right, you admitted it. But if you make an honest mistake or you just screw up and you admit it and get it out there and get it behind you, people will let you move on. And that's kind of the lesson learned that I've learned in my life uh, in business and hopefully that I can tell the PR professionals, CEOs, and so forth to say, don't try to hide the weenie. Be straightforward. You'll get past this. Why would you write the book? What motivated you to do so? Actually, I started it about two years ago and was too busy to really set up outline and then just couldn't get engaged. Uh, it's one of the parts of being ADHD, which hurts you. And finally, about four and a half months ago, I finally said, I've got to write this now. And I just plowed myself into sometimes writing 10 to 12 hours a day. That's a lot of writing. I know how hard, because I've tried it myself unsuccessfully in, in terms of writing a book. The other thing I found uh, so interesting about it, it's a very quick read. I mean, you, I tore through the book. As I'm fond of telling everybody, I was traveling at the time. I read the whole book on my stupid phone. That's how it sucked into it I was. You're very profane in it, which you can be in real life. Don't be so on this TV show, please. But why did you include that in the book? Why, why did you put such a strong voice in it? Because it's my voice. It's, most of the profanity is in quotes. And so I want to be factual. And so if there was profanity in a quote, it's in there. Actually, I went through the book uh, a couple times and removed some of the unnecessary profanity. My editor, Michael Shabriz, is a, a devout Mormon. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was going in the final edit mode, and I said, I'm going to take a little more profanity out. And he said, no, you're not. Don't lose your voice. Uh, yeah, my mom's going to be mad at me when she reads the book, but uh, you guys know me. Um, and it's, I wanted to be real. And it is very real. I, I spoke to another colleague, a former colleague of yours, uh, the other day about it, and he had seen an advanced copy as well. And... We both said it's just like sitting down and talking to Jason in the bar. It's it's really it's it's like it's it's very conversational. And uh, I know most people wouldn't think that journalists talk this way, but uh, but, <laughs> but sometimes they do. But, but sometimes those words just slip out. That's right. Also, what's very interesting, Jason, is you provided a lot of detail. I. I, I because, you know, our, our careers have overlapped so much and I'm very aware of all these crises that you handled in the automotive industry. I knew a lot about it, but you also put in a lot of background that I wasn't aware of. You must have been very careful about your facts because some people may not be all that happy with what you wrote. And I'm sure that's got to be one of the things that you really concentrated on was fact checking. That was the most excruciating part of the book. Is, thank God for the internet, you know, so I could go back and see dates. I did not want to allow myself one slip up. Somebody go, ah, oh, this is fiction. See, he's off by a day. So I poured through that. I spent most of the time after writing it going through to make sure I was 100% factually correct, not only on my quotes, but on the dates and what happened. 
and I'm really confident I'm there. And that's why, it, going back, to Tom, to your question about you'll never work in this town again, this is a factual account. This is stuff that really happened. This is a behind-the-scenes look, but it's also to see how companies handled themselves in a crisis and how some companies failed. And I think that hopefully that's valuable. Speaking of companies in crisis, uh, how do you think GM has done, and specifically how do you think CEO Mary Barra has done? Well, as I write in my book, I'm a big fan of uh, Mary Barra. Mm -hmm. I think she's handled herself incredibly well. I think she deserved the position she's in. You know, the conspiracy theorists that I talk about in the book said uh, she got it because she's a chick. And they needed a chick in there to take the blow for this because guys are less tough on women. That's crap. Um, she deserved it. She's handling it very well. Uh, after an initial mess, misstep in the hearing, I thought that was a disaster. As I write in the book, if you're the opening skit of Saturday Night Live, that's, that means you screwed up. Uh, unfortunately, I think uh, GM Legal and Government Affairs was in charge of that first hearing. And she got to be a little too cute with her answers about the new GM and the old GM. Uh, but since then, I think every step of the way, she's made the right moves. I think she shows they care about the company, uh, the, the customers of the company. Um, I hope that I'm not too damning of GM in the book because I, I'm a big believer in General Motors. Uh, like any big company, they can make mistakes. This was a huge one. Somebody's going to pay for this, and somebody should, and maybe multiple people. The fact that they didn't know it kind of says that that was the Titanic in the sea. Hopefully they can fix that. It's sad that 27 now have died. It'll be more. Um, but somebody was criminally culpable in this. And that's where I discuss in the book, was, was this worse than the Ford Firestone crisis? In some well, 271 people died in the Firestone Tire crisis. And I repeat, Firestone Tire crisis. 27 or 28 have died as of our filming today in the GM switch problem. Fact is, somebody knew there was a problem and did nothing. They did something about it going forward, but nothing backward. At Ford, we were constantly looking for the problem, an answer to the problem, and we're being just ignored by Firestone. We finally discovered the problem and we fixed it. And we took care of our customers. And first time we reacted to a tragedy, the next time we prevented a tragedy. So that's why this thing's uglier in the end and why the plaintiff's attorneys are just licking their chops because there was a f problem identified and nothing done. And if the, the lawyers, uh, this, my opinion, might cost GM $20 billion at the end of the day when we all get said and done. That's a lot of billions. That's a lot of billions. Um, as you mentioned, you feel that uh, Ford Motor Company did everything right, you working with Jack Nasser on it. Uh, and yet, as you reveal in the book, and this is one of the bombshells, one of several bombshells in there, your phone was being tapped by the company. Your car was bugged by the company. And you say in the book that uh, the chairman, Bill Ford Jr., was actually leaking information to the media without you knowing about it. Well, let me take that one on first. I think he was doing that. It's, that's what I was told uh, because he was trying to curry favor with a journalist. Um, Bill likes to be liked. Uh, he shared uh, ideology with Keith Bradshaw, a very liberal... Of the New York Times. Uh, ...journalist for the New York Times. It's a big paper. And I was told that by security guys that that's where the leak had come from, which was frustrating for me. You know, this, most of the time this was good news stuff. 
but it got out of hand. And so journalists like you and you and you would be ticked off because the New York Times got it the day before. And so I wasn't helping control the message. It was out of control. And but why would the company bug your phones? Well, I, when the night I, we got fired, I was at Jack's apartment uh, with a bunch of uh, the assistants who were crying and other executives and security guys. I, and I, knew, I had the feeling my phone had been bugged. Um, and I said, how long has my phone big, been bugged? Top security guy goes, a couple months. Uh, earlier, a few weeks earlier, I'd gone up to the general counsel's office to share with him a letter to the editor that I was writing to Automotive News. And as I came into his office, started talking, he said, shh. And he turned up his radio and whispered in my ear, they're listening. And I shared what I need to share with him. And he goes, it's okay. But uh, I, I don't, to this day, I don't know why. I wasn't an, an enemy of the company. I was trying to help. Us. You were one of the senior officers of the company. Yeah, I was trying to help us get through this massive crisis with a really bad supplier who had no intention of helping the customer. And, uh, but it was the dark days. It was the night of the long knives and conspiring against Jack. And, of course, I'm his PR guy. I get fired with him as, long, as well as the HR guy. Uh, worst and best day of my life. <laughs> so, just to stay on on Ford for for a moment longer, when you at the outset you put Jack Nasser at the top of your list of uh, of CEOs, and a lot of people might have expected another Ford name, Alan Mulally, to be there. Now I know I know you didn't work for Alan, um, and that you were looking at him from afar. But just as it relates to Bill Ford, a lot of people gave Bill Ford some credit for recognizing that he wasn't the guy to be running the company at that time and for going out and getting Alan. Where did Bill drop the ball with regard to Jack? Um, I'm actually a, a, a big fan of Bill Ford for this community in Detroit. Um, where I think he dropped the ball with Nasser is he lost faith in Jack and he blamed him for stuff. And you know, it's rumors that those guys were always in fist fights and so forth all during... Um, I think he should have had more faith in what Jack was trying to do through this massive crisis. And we had all these recalls during that time, all these vehicle recalls. Manufacturing was broken. Product development bro was broken. And Jack was trying to fix it. And I think Bill should have given him more credit and more time to do that. Um, I think, and I've said this, and this is not a shot at Bill Ford because I think he's a good person. Um, he was smart enough to know he wasn't smart enough to run the company. And that's when he went and grabbed Mulally, which was the best thing that could have happened at Ford Motor Company. And, and what Mulally did was he stopped the sharp elbows at Ford. Ford is famous for sharp elbows, both internally and externally. Incredibly competitive bunch of people, sometimes mean, mostly good. But Mulally somehow corralled that and also got down in the trenches with them and said, I'm going this way, follow me. And that's why Ford is the success that it is today. That's different than what happened at Chrysler, for instance, with Nardelli. He wasn't willing to get into the trenches with the people and be their, uh, their comrades. He just had nothing, basically, it seemed like, but disdain for the Chrysler employees. This kind of predates your time, but Peter, your father was the vice president of corporate communications for General Motors when the whole Ralph Nader thing blew up. And tell that story a little bit, and I'd like to get Jason's input, too, because... You, what you've told me in the past is this was kind of a rogue operation. This was not a decision 
by the corporation to put a detective following Ralph Nader. This was an individual who did it. Yes, it was. Uh, my father basically wrote the book on modern auto corporate PR uh, during his 22-year stint, but the most famous incident was Ralph Nader. And yes, a rogue element of the GM legal staff took it upon himself to um, commission private detectives to follow around Ralph Nader in Washington, D.C., and not very good ones, because the anecdote I heard was finally Ralph Nader saw these guys and just went up to him and said, what are you guys doing? So, well, we're, we're following you. And basically, the short, who do you work for? And they said, GM. And so uh, there was a meeting of the top brass of the company, and my dad was asked what's going on because Nader had gone public, and the head of GM Legal was there, a man by the name of Aloysius Powers, and my dad, and my dad said, we had no knowledge of this. We don't know anything about it. And finally, uh, Aloysius Powers had to admit that to Jim Roach, the chairman, uh, yeah, we, we did it. And then my dad was the one who had to tell Jim Roach, you got to go to Washington, you got to apologize. My dad sat right behind him uh, in the hearings. And that was, you know, that was a... Jason, have you run into that where somebody in the corporation goes rogue and creates this massive PR problem? Uh, no, not really. I haven't. Uh, what would you do in a situation like that? You apologize. Uh, you know, think about it. Back in uh, early 80s, the, the few employees at St. Louis Assembly Plant for Chrysler were disconnecting odometers and driving in home at night. Just so they had a free car to yeah. drive home. and they'd come back and they'd reconnect the odometer. When it was exposed, Iacocca came out and said this went beyond dumb all the way to stupid and apologized. That's what you do. You admit problems, you apologize, and you move on. So, But, you know, when you say things like, you know, this goes way beyond all the way to stupid, it's more than like admitting a problem. That, that's like uh, almost confronting it head on, and that seems to be more your style. And it, and it cuts, it is... As a reporter, what else can you say to me if I say, hey, this was stupid, what I did? God, I'm sorry. I did it. I won't do it again. Uh, what's your comeback? There is no comeback. So it's, 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 we see this right now in the, in the election stuff when people can't answer who they voted for and so forth like that. Just be honest. You diffuse every situation if you're honest. When you're slippery, it just it, it creates a vacuum that gets filled. That direct, frank honesty um, sometimes doesn't cross cultures real well and you know talk about the stupid stick and some of your interactions with uh, Japanese executives when you were at Nissan. Well the, the Japanese and I'm gonna sound like I'm stereotyping but uh, I will. Uh, my dealings with Firestone, Bridgestone Firestone, Nissan and so forth. Uh, the Japanese as a culture I believe and I've been asked this during the Toyota crisis have a tendency to stick their head in the sand and hope the, the crisis goes away. I saw that it's at Nissan, I saw it at Firestone, just hope it goes away. And it's not going to go away, especially in today's, you know, the last 20 years of the digital world. The problem is going to stay with you until you answer to it some way or another. And hopefully you'll answer to it without lying, because that just exacerbates everything. So the stupid stick was um, I was being interviewed by um, Bob Simonson of the Wall Street Journal, I had just been at Nissan about, I don't know, five months, and we were starting to gain a little bit of traction. 
little, there seemed to be a spark there between Mike Sergi, the head of Nissan brand, and myself. And Bob wanted to write a story about it. And he asked, what happened to this company to get in this problem in the first place? And diarrhea of the mouth, I said, oh, this company got hit with a giant stupid stick. Well, that was the opening paragraph on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And uh, it created quite a stir. And my, uh, my CEO, my dear friend, Minoru Nakamura, he took me outside where we like to smoke cigarettes. And he said, well, and I'm going to do an imitation, what meaning of stupid stick? <laughs> I go, it's the past regime, those stupid ads with the dogs. He goes, hmm. I said, do you know what regime is? He goes, what do you mean? I didn't get hit with a stupid stick. <laughs> so he understood where I was coming from, that I was a little bit edgy, but I was brutally frank. And he always had my back as we kind of forced our will against a, a management in Japan that wanted to stick its head in the sand. And we finally prevailed, thanks in part to Carlos Ghosn and Renault. But uh, we kept the ship afloat long enough that the, the prize was there for Renault because we had been left at the altar by Daimler Chrysler. They wanted to buy us and then looked under the, the sheets and said, oh, this is an ugly company. This thing is so going bankrupt and we can't help it. But Renault is ready to snatch it back up. And the rest is history. And now Nissan Renault is one of the most successful auto companies in the world. So the name of the book is What Did Jesus Drive? Crises in public relations, in cars, communication. No, cars, computers, and Christianity. Gotcha. And so people can go and find this in their favorite bookstore and online and It'll all be that? online. It's on Amazon. Um, it's everywhere. Um, it's in bookstores around the country. And uh, the uh, ebook is available November 1, a day ago. Yeah. Um, it's available uh, in paperback on November 15. The audiobook is November 15 as well. Real good. Jason Vine, thanks, thanks so much for coming in. I want to thank Peter DeLorenzo, Tom Walsh as well. I highly recommend the book. I could not put it down. If you don't like profanity, I'm giving you a fair warning, but I'm telling you, you're going to want to read it. <laughs>